0: Welcome to Cleary Got Needs Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom and light. My name is Nick Levy and I'll be your host today. I've come to Brussels to meet today's guest, whom I first met over 30 years ago when he was already tapped as one of the most talented officials of his generation, well known for his erudition and brilliance. In the intervening period, he's had an extraordinary career at the European Commission. He served in the cabinet or private office of Sir Leon Britain during his tenure as EU Competition Commissioner in the early 1990s, before being appointed to a series of senior positions in DG Comp, Head of Transport and Tourism, Head of Coordination and Policy, Director of International Affairs, and Deputy Director General for State Aid. The early 2000s saw him serve as Commission President Prodi's Chief Spokesman before he became Director General of Justice and Home Affairs. And he subsequently served as Director General of Internal Market and Services before heading the Director General for Financial Stability, Financial Services and Capital Markets Union. His final role at the European Commission was as Director General of the Task Force for Strategic Issues Related to the UK Referendum. Now Chair of European Public Affairs at the Brunswick Group, I'm delighted to welcome Sir Jonathan Fall. Jonathan, let me start with Brexit. You came to Brussels almost 40 years ago, one of a generation of lawyers excited by the opportunities created by Britain's participation in the European project. In the intervening period, you witnessed firsthand the creation of the single European market, in part at the instigation of the British government had a ringside seat in the early days of the merger regulation when you served, as I mentioned, in the cabinet of the British commissioner who oversaw its implementation and headed the commission directorate charged with leading negotiations with then-Prime Minister Cameron in the run-up to the fateful Brexit vote in June 2016. So I have three questions. When did Britain's relationship with Europe start to go wrong? With the benefit of hindsight, what, if anything, do you think the EU should have done differently And if you could wind back time, should the EU have given Britain a better deal in 2015 and 2016, would that have changed the outcome of the referendum?
1: Well, thank you, Nick. And thank you very much for uh, inviting me uh, to do this podcast, which uh, I uh, follow avidly and admire uh, when it's somebody else. Uh, The... uh, The questions are, of course, of enormous importance, uh, historically now. Uh, When did things start to go wrong? Well, that depends on what you mean by wrong. Uh, The relationship was always a complicated one. It was, uh, I mean, every member state is different, but the UK in a way was more different than, than the others. Uh, We joined late, Uh, we joined after a period during which we had been a candidate uh, turned down uh, for accession by the French essentially, and we joined at a relatively low ebb in our economic uh, fortunes, Uh, and above all, and I think this is a structural difference, the UK Unlike, I think, all the other member states uh, saw throughout the good years and the the more difficult ones saw the European Union in a very different light and its engagement with it in a very different light from the others. So many of the others had been dictatorships uh, of left or right. Uh, those countries saw the European Union rightly, I would say, as part of their. Uh, emancipation from dictatorship, and part of their membership of the modern democratic community and modern democratic worlds. Uh, And that is true of Spain and Portugal and Greece, and it's true all the way through to the countries of the former uh, Soviet bloc, or indeed in the case of the three Baltic republics of the Soviet Union proper countries, which were simply written off the map. Uh, to extend that argument a little, uh, many member states, uh, all of those I think, but others too, also saw the European Union as, and see still the European Union, as a guarantor of, uh, of human rights, of fundamental rights, uh, of the membership of the Western liberal, uh, in the political sense, community. Uh, uh, we never thought that the European Union guaranteed our fundamental rights. we British now, we never thought that the European Union kept the troops in the barracks, that our troops never left the barracks. Uh, uh, we didn't need, and I think that was a pretty universal view, even among uh, fans of the European Union, we didn't need the EU to guarantee our fundamental rights, they weren't in question. So Uh, uh, the vision of the EU as a more narrow economic interest was largely unique, I think, uh, uh, in the case of the UK. Now, whether that meant, as some now say, that as the European Union developed from a common market into all the things that it does today, uh, we were somehow left behind, uh, and the terms of our original engagement Uh, accession in 73 confirmed in a referendum in 75 was somehow invalidated that's a matter of political debate Uh, but uh, I think the relationship was always complex for for those historical reasons and that was reflected in the various special regimes the European Union was uh, willing to negotiate with the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom had its suite of opt-outs and opt-ins and didn't join the euro, didn't join Schengen, uh, and yet uh, had uh, all the rights and prestige and influence of a large member state. So it was catered for uh, uh, the British singularity uh, in many ways. Uh, When it went wrong, well it went wrong as in British politics Uh, Euro-scepticism moved from the margins of uh, national debate uh, into the centre of national debate uh, by uh, the growth of pressure groups, the growth of political parties, and then ultimately uh, finding uh, sympathisers in the mainstream political parties, in particular the Conservative Party uh, as well. And, of course, the decision to have a referendum. A referendum is a snapshot of public opinion at any moment in time. Nobody can say, by the way, in 2016, uh, another member state or two might not have voted to leave as well. Who knows? Um, But the UK was a pretty risky place to have one uh, because of the the nature of the relationship, the failure, frankly, by uh, succeeding generations of politicians to explain it. Uh, widespread hostility in mainstream media and so on, but referendum we
0: had and we got the result we know. So there you were, Jonathan, negotiating with then uh, Prime Minister Cameron, um, who was confident of uh, uh, a positive outcome. Knowing what we know now, do you think the EU should have been a bit more generous in what it uh, gave him and? Secondly, do you think there was ever an opportunity after the result to go back to Britain, as the EU has sometimes done when referenda don't go well, and say, well, look, if you hold another referendum, we'll give you sweetened terms? Well, I mean,
1: Nick, knowing what we know now is uh, an extraordinarily broad uh, proviso. Uh, we we could not have known in 2016 that there would be a worldwide pandemic, a war on European soil. And frankly, we could not know either just how chaotic British politics would be in implementing the decision uh, taken by the people in the referendum. So uh, we have to be careful not to be too uh, wise uh, in, in retrospect. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, everybody wanted the UK to stay. I think any any suggestion that among the 27 other member states or the Brussels institutions uh, any suggestion there were people there who actually were saying well the Brits are a pest good riddance, we're better off without them that is simply not true. Uh, uh, we may have been awkward uh, but we brought many things to the party and the UK was a was a valued member state for all sorts of reasons. Nobody wanted to see Article 50 used, nobody wanted to see a member state leave. Uh, so uh, if we had known then what the world would be like now in 2023, no doubt greater greater efforts would have been made to uh, secure uh, British membership and therefore uh, a positive vote in the referendum. Uh, Everything that's happened in the world since shows that some of the things the British are good at are an extremely valuable asset for the European Union as a whole. And I would say uh, that uh, those events also show that the United Kingdom uh, would have had uh, a considerable benefit from belonging to a continental-wide organization like the European Union. What more could have been done? Well, from one lawyer to another, that does come down to a legal question at the end of the day. One of the fateful steps Mr Cameron took when he became prime minister in 2015 uh, with an outright majority in the House of Commons was to hold the referendum quickly. Uh, We warned him, once you decide to have a referendum very quickly, you rule out any possibility of changing the treaties. If you don't change the treaties, you have to operate within their uh, bounds. Otherwise, you run the risk that the Court of Justice will strike down uh, something you've done. uh, And at the very least, you give the other side a very strong argument that the the Court of Justice will strike down uh, whatever deal was done. So we were constrained in what could be done. Uh, To take a very simple example, actually, uh, which shows that we perhaps went even too far. Uh, There was a specific part of the deal in 2016 uh, providing for uh, changes in the way child benefit is paid uh, to workers from another member state. One of the British complaints uh, in the Migration and Free Movement chapter was that... Workers from other member states in the UK often left their families, including young children, back in their home country. And it was unfair to expect the British to pay child allowance uh, for children who were actually living uh, in other parts of the the continent, other parts of Europe, uh, uh, including in many countries where uh, the cost of living was much lower. Uh, There were two ways of thinking about that. One was this is part of a workers' overall remuneration package and you can't discriminate between uh, British workers uh, and their uh, fellow European citizen workers on the basis of where the children might be resident. Uh, The other was to show some understanding for that and either phase in the entitlement to show some uh, growth of genuine connection with the British uh, labour market and British society more generally, or very complicated bureaucratic system to be invented uh, to allow uh, for a child benefit to be paid at the rate which would have prevailed in the uh, country of residence of the children. And that's what we plumped for. Uh, and it's what would have been implemented if, uh, if the referendum had succeeded. Austria, a few years ago, tried exactly the same wheeze and the Court of Justice threw it out uh, after a few minutes' consideration. I exaggerate, you know what I mean. Open and shut case, discrimination, you can't do that. So uh, perhaps not only uh, would it have been difficult to do much more, perhaps we did too much. Uh, There were enormous difficulties uh, in catering for Uh, a member state wanting a very special regime in respect of uh, free movement of uh, workers and people.
0: And Jonathan, on my second question, uh, you were were at the heart of the commission when the result came in, and in the weeks following, was there any discussion about whether it was worth uh, revisiting the terms and seeing if there was scope for another referendum, or was that really it? It was considered, I think, uh, for a
1: very brief period of time. I mean, I essentially uh, resigned after the referendum. I left the commission uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, So I wasn't privy to all the discussions. It was made pretty clear uh, in uh, uh, the UK that that was not what they were looking for. Uh, that uh, knowing the resolute, some would say bloody-mindedness of British people, uh, they would not look kindly on being asked to vote again after what had been a pretty divisive uh, 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 series of convulsions in British politics. So, no, I don't think it was ever a serious possibility.
0: Thanks, Jonathan. So let's move on in a way. Uh, A lot's been written about the effect of uh, Brexit on the UK, but less on the effect of Brexit on the EU. Um, It's still relatively early days. um, But do you see any change in the decisions that the EU has taken and the way in which they've been taken following Brexit? And do you think the EU has been strengthened or weakened by Brexit? Well, a bit of both. I think yes, there are changes. I think uh,
1: in uh, in the way in which the EU uh, has coped with the pandemic uh, and with the war in Ukraine, uh, the British presence uh, in all at all the various levels of decision making would have been. Uh, important and might have uh, strengthened various positions, altered various outcomes, perhaps not radically. I think in the great debates swirling around about competition policy, industrial policy, trade policy, the very distinctive British voice, which had many uh, allies supporting it within the European Union, uh, is uh, missed or perhaps is enjoyed by people who want uh, 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 to push approaches different from those which the United Kingdom would have been traditionally associated with. I think there, there is a big uh, hole. Uh, And more broadly, uh, the British contribution, not only prime ministers and ministers uh, jetting or uh, training into, uh, uh, into council meetings, but the the hundreds of everyday contacts between British officials and their counterparts in working groups, but also in cafes and uh, sidelines of meetings and so on. All of that has gone uh, to a certain extent in recent months. There are some signs of some partial uh, resurgence or recreation of contacts and discussions, Uh, but... That is considered to be a loss, perhaps more among the traditional allies of the UK in northern, central, eastern Europe, perhaps Cyprus and Malta as well in the Mediterranean. That's a lot of member states. Uh,
0: We left a lot of very good friends behind. Jonathan, you've mentioned a couple of times the crises of the last few years, uh, the pandemic, Ukraine, the energy crisis, now the cost of living crisis. Uh, You'll know well the old adage that uh, Europe is made in crises. How do you think the institutions are bearing up? Have we reached the limits of integration? Or do you think we're going to experience ever closer integration over the next decade, possibly facilitated by Brexit?
1: Yes, I, I don't think we have reached the limit. I think uh, there will be ups and downs. Uh, it's not quite the uh, uh, fully uh, uh, deterministic uh, progress towards uh, some Euro paradise that some of my former colleagues might think it is. Uh, but uh, I think the EU institutions have coped pretty well, uh, given the... Uh, the challenges uh, posed by Russia, given the challenges posed by uh, the the pandemic. Public health, let us not forget, was considered before uh, COVID-19 to be the poster child for subsidiarity and decentralization, devolution to regions. That's why you had uh, uh, four or five different ministers Uh, during the lockdown on British television screens every week. It's why you had loads more Belgian ministers, by the way, uh, uh, over in Brussels telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Remarkably coherent and cohesive uh, within countries and across countries. Uh, So uh, I think the way the EU coped uh, and is coping with uh, both the consequences of the pandemic and now coping with uh, the war in Ukraine and thinking ahead to the reconstruction of of Ukraine, a new and different relationship with Russia, what all that means for uh, enlargement of the Union in the years to come. Uh, In all of those uh, major geopolitical and, and big policy issues, I think the EU has done pretty well. Brexit has sort of galvanised, for how long, I don't know, but has galvanised the uh, the union solidarity. Nobody else is talking about leaving at the moment. Uh, and nothing's forever, but uh, even the countries which in 2016, when we voted, uh, might have been tempted to vote in a similar way if anybody had asked them, I don't think they would today. Uh, all the opinion polls show that. Perhaps we wouldn't either, but that's another matter. Uh, so... Brexit has uh, in a way uh, acted as a discipline on the others. I mean, if this great old democracy of uh, the United Kingdom has found it so difficult to adjust to uh, leaving the EU, what hope is there for uh, more uh, fragile uh, democracies? Um, And the EU has had to develop in ways which even when I left, uh, six or seven years ago were unthinkable. The EU borrows money, distributes it, uh, does things which were considered unthinkable beyond the pale. Uh, so the adage about
0: growing in crisis has some weight, I think. So let's turn to competition law and antitrust enforcement in particular. You championed the modernization programme of the early 2000s that effectively ended the notification system for uh, agreements and concerted practices. And as you know well, gave national competition agencies the power to apply EU competition rules. How do you think the system whose establishment you oversaw has aged? And what of any changes would you now make?
1: Oh, I think it's aged pretty well. I think we have seen uh, the spread of national enforcement. Uh, the maturing of national competition policy, uh, the authorities created to to implement it. Uh, Coordination with Brussels works well, as far as I can see, nearly all the time. Uh, There's the whole international coordination. Uh, On top of that, Brexit, by the way, adds the UK as a a foreign country for the EU and its member states uh, to deal with on that basis as well. Uh, with all sorts of interesting current uh, controversies already emerging. Uh, So, yes, I think the system has worked well. uh, And no doubt it's time to look at it again. Indeed, from time to time, one should. But I don't think there is anybody who wants to go back to uh, the pre-modernization system of Uh, Commission monopoly over exemptions with all the rigmarole of comfort letters because the machine simply couldn't cope with the volume of work. Uh, There are 27 member states now. So, uh, yes, it's one of the world's most respected
0: competition law systems and deserves to be. Jonathan, you've been in Brussels a long time. You've seen many changes in the enforcement of EU competition law. You're a leading jurist on EU competition law. Aside from the modernization programme, what do you think have been the most significant changes over the last 20, 30 years? 20, 30? Well, the, I suppose the maturing of the merger control system,
1: uh, which has also established itself as uh, one of the world's uh, uh, leading systems. We can argue about individual cases, but the system works well uh, and is respected uh, the world over. Uh, obviously, the focus on economics, uh, economists, when I started my uh, life in DG4, economists were a rather rare, exotic breed who told us that they had techniques uh, which would help us understand things. And we were, I hope, humble enough. Uh, we, the majority lawyers, I mean, were humble enough uh, to know that we needed that because we had to understand uh, the markets, the products, the services, the companies we were dealing with. The other big change, of course, is that uh, services have become so much more important. Uh, when I started out, we were still in the era of coal and steel and cars, and it were, we were dealing with things. Uh, and there were one or two services, and I was head of the, uh, <coughs> the transport division for a while, and there we dealt, obviously, with... Uh, uh, air, uh, rail, uh, road, and uh, maritime services. and but, but that was unusual. Most of the time, we were looking at markets, defining how they worked, understanding how products were made, distributed, bought and sold. Today's challenges, in particularly in the digital economy, are much more complicated. There are things you can't see, uh, you don't stop them at borders. They're not distributed through shops, and above all, some of the markets in which uh, analysis of which an- analysis is called for are nascent. You are looking round the corner into the future. You're worrying about uh, the impact of a could be a merger, could be a uh, uh, set of behaviours on. Uh, possible future developments. That is much harder. Uh, and there, the economists and, and technological experts are much more needed, perhaps even than lawyers, or certainly alongside lawyers. It's not the rules that are so complicated, it's the uh, the understanding of the, uh, uh,
0: the market situation to which the rules are being applied. For so long, Jonathan, as you know, teaching competitions really had three main... Um, uh, functions or pillars, um, uh, review, assessment of um, agreements, concerted practices, Article 101 um, and uh, Article 102 in the dominance area, merger control, and state aid. The last few years have seen um, the EU add two new competences, it seems to me. Firstly, the um, uh, the assessment of... Uh, foreign subsidies, and secondly, regulation in the digital area. Uh, Again, a two-part question. Do you have any misgivings about the expansion of scope of DG competition into these areas, um, which are to some extent a natural expansion from what they've historically been doing, but still an expansion nonetheless? And do you think they'll be able to cope with these new responsibilities?
1: Yes, I do think they'll be able to cope if it's properly resourced. Um, I mean, there's a bureaucratic question about which department should do what. Uh, And obviously, uh, in respect to foreign subsidies, there is a considerable overlap with uh, state aid analysis. Uh, Equally, obviously, there is a foreign trade uh, connection Uh, and the commission has trade experts, trade DG, uh, and those people will have to work together. In respect of regulated sectors, yes, of course, the digital economy uh, is uh, increasingly uh, regulated uh, and the Commission has departments uh, responsible for uh, certain aspects of those regulations uh, with which DG COMP will have to work. But again, the, the basic analyses of impact of corporate behavior on today's and tomorrow's competition are bread and butter for for competition authorities. It's different, I suppose, in degree and size and scope, but not terribly different in nature from what I did in, uh, well, I can't remember when it was now, 1992 to five, I think, in, in the transport division back in DG4, my first head of division job we worked usually in harmony with the transport people because we had to know that they were heavily regulated. In fact, part of what they were doing and we were trying to help them do was to deregulate them. When trying to understand how competition worked and should work in the railways or uh, air transport or on the roads or uh, uh, in line of shipping, we needed to work very closely with other parts of the... uh, Uh, the commission who had experts in those fields. And I'm sure that was uh, mirrored, as it must be today, in in each of the member
0: states. As much as some of us might like competition enforcement to operate in a kind of ivory tower in Brussels, it doesn't, of course. It operates in a political environment. You've, over many years, um, been a fierce defender of the commission's independence from political pressure. Seems to me those pressures have, if anything, increased over the last few years, uh, with calls for the Commission to relax state aid rules in Europe. uh, As we've mentioned, to intervene to prevent non-European companies benefiting from foreign subsidies, uh, to stand in the way of acquisitions of European companies by hostile foreign actors, to flex merger control rules to allow the creation of national or European champions, And as we've mentioned, to regulate the world's leading digital platforms, at least in part, in the view of some at least, to assist European rivals. How do you think the Commission is doing in protecting its independence? I think it's doing well.
1: Those tensions have always been present. We know more about them, perhaps. They're more visible than they used to be. Uh, And it's healthy in, in democracies that those issues should be debated. Uh, The Commission is independent, uh, but it is a political body uh, accountable to the European Parliament and through the European Parliament to the the population more widely. And, of course, it's legally uh, accountable to to the judges in uh, in Luxembourg. So uh, there are choices to be made, and those choices should be informed by political debate, which that accountability should provide for the political side of it, I mean, not the judicial. But I think looking at, the there are various models around the world, uh, looking at those models around the world and considering the nature of the European Union, which is not a state, uh, but a supranational body uh, uh, living off pooled sovereignty drawn from the member states, I can't think of a uh, better system than the one we have now with whatever faults it might have. People have sometimes argued that it should be spun off into a completely, genuinely independent body, uh, perhaps in another city to, uh, along the German German model. Uh, put the Federal Cartel Office in Berlin when the capital's born and vice versa uh, uh, when the capital moves to Berlin. You can do that. You can do that in a country. Uh, I'm not sure you can do that in the EU. Uh, There would be legal constitutional issues. Moroni springs to mind about uh, uh, doing that anyway. So I I was never in favour of a, a completely independent European competition office outside the Commission. I think embedded in the Commission brings with it the uh, expertise when needed of
0: the the rest of the institution and the accountabilities I referred to. Turning back briefly to Brexit, one of the things that Britain used to say, at least to itself, was that it was important that it stay in uh, Europe in order to protect the Commission's independence, um, particularly in the competition area. It doesn't seem to me, though, that um, uh, uh, Brexit and the withdrawal of the UK... Has had material implications so far, at least for the way in which the Commission has taken uh, competition uh, decisions. I suppose you might argue, in some ways, the UK has become a little more like continental Europe in injecting or thinking about injecting politics back into competition enforcement in the UK. What's your reaction to that?
1: Too early to tell. It's it's a cop out, I know, but uh, uh, in any attempt to uh draw conclusions from brexit we have to remember that it has barely begun this post-brexit era and it has been thoroughly mixed up with all the other terrible things that have happened in the world since so it's very hard to ascribe uh uh, effects to causes and so on so let's be i think we should be humble about that uh weather (laughs) very interesting point uh Has has the UK become more continental or did the continent become more British? Well, it works both ways. Uh, And the challenges uh, that the world presents today to uh, institutions and to competition authorities with uh, the digital economy, the rise of protectionism, the tensions between uh, the United States and China, Uh, the horrible European fear of missing out on this industrial revolution, of being simply a consumer of things designed and made somewhere else, um, that is bound to have an impact on uh, competition policy. And some who always said this, some will certainly say we need to adapt, uh, bend, uh, flex, uh, competition policy to uh, to deal with these industrial policy issues by encouraging, as you said, encouraging European champions, uh, protecting uh, would-be European champions, and so on. The UK had a very distinctive position uh, on those issues uh, as a member state. Uh, it's a pity it's no longer there, even if it may not hold entirely to all of those positions anymore because itself is going through the same uh, thought processes uh, except that for the UK it is now going through them as a remarkably significant important and beloved country uh, but as a much smaller territory in a
0: world of uh, continental blocs Jonathan, I'd like to turn now to the role of uh, competition commissioner. By my tally, you've seen at least seven um, competition commissioners Peter Sutherland, uh, Leon Britton, um, uh, Mario Monti, Carol Van Meert, Nelly Cruz, Joe Canarmunia, and Marguerite Versteyer. Indeed, when we you, first. You met, forgot Franz Andreessen. I forgot France Andreessen, so eight, <laughs> in fact. How's the role of competition commissioner changed, and how do you think history will view Commissioner Versteyer's two term tenure? Well, it's changed because of uh, media impact,
1: uh, because because the merger regulation, I think, largely uh, gave it uh, front-page status in international business affairs. Uh, Before then, it was not a technical backwater, but... I mean, if you look at uh, one could do the research, I suppose, the front page of European business papers, the FT, for example, uh, would the early commissioners have been regular uh, features? I doubt it. Uh, So the merger regulation made a difference. Social media made a difference. And, uh, you know, easy journalism, rock star this and rock star that uh, and uh, sort of soft news features uh, and good and bad, uh, you get clobbered if things go wrong. Uh, I think in recent years, competition commissioners have become considerable personalities, uh, known across Europe for what they do, uh, on the news, in the, on the TV, in the media, in ways which uh, in the 60s and 70s, frankly, would not have been uh, conceivable. Where does Margreta Vestea fit into that great pantheon? Well, uh, she is an important figure. Uh, She is uh, a uh, striking personality. Uh, She communicates well. She obviously uh, uh, takes her job very seriously. She's brave enough to have done two terms, uh, which uh, means a lot of her early cases come through on appeal, which is not always a a comfortable experience. I think her record is still uh, good. Uh, And she has shown great poise and skill in in doing her job. Uh, At a time of international tension, economic difficulty, I think
0: um, history will rate her pretty highly. You've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Jonathan, merger control, and it seems to me we're at a fascinating uh, juncture in merger control. You and I will remember the controversy 20 years ago around the General Electric Honeywell transaction, which the European Commission prohibited on a conglomerate effects theory of harm that the then heads of the US agencies were very critical of in the last few weeks, uh, we've seen uh, the FTC bring uh, a challenge to uh, a merger on the, on the basis of a conglomerate effects theory of harm. Uh, we've seen the European Commission approve a transaction that the CMA in the UK has blocked and the FTC is seeking to enjoin in the United States. And obviously the, the rhetoric around antitrust uh, and merger control in particular, Um, has become more intense in the last few years, uh, with the US agency heads calling for more intervention, Um, uh, the CMA heads to some extent, the FCO heads, and the ACCC heads saying similar things. The European Commission has been extremely consistent, it seems to me, uh, in uh, recent years. So my question, Jonathan, is do you think that's likely to uh, continue Or do you think there's a possibility that um, enforcement in the merger area uh, tightens?
1: Well, I think it may tighten because uh, there are uh, ups and downs and ebbs and flows uh, in uh, the way in which uh, markets are uh, analyzed and the concerns that are expressed. Through the political system, uh, Brussels. The Brussels political debate is less uh, exposed to the uh, to the public than in Washington and London, where uh, you know there are robust uh, political debates about uh, the future of competition uh, policy, uh, and uh, even party politics become involved. In the EU, it's not quite like that. Many of the issues are there and are discussed in different ways. The possibility of uh, use uh, using the conglomerate effects theory to deal with mergers has always existed. Uh, you're right to say that it has suffered from... Um, uh, I was going to say fashion, that's unfair, but the, there have been periods where it was considered uh, difficult to apply, unnecessary to apply. Perhaps we've become more sophisticated about the economics, uh, which makes it uh, more plausible to, uh, to use the theory. Perhaps it lends itself more easily to uh, some of the questions posed by the digital economy than... Uh, the old uh, economy of uh, things widgets and coal and steel and so on um it's there the commission never renounced it uh it's there to be used if the case can be can be made to stick um related to that, but not at all the same issue is is remedies uh, a lot of the controversies in recent uh, I was going to say years, even months, uh, have been about uh, how acceptable certain remedies are and to what extent the behavioural structural distinction uh, is a binary one or is still an appropriate one. Again, uh, in, uh, in the digital economy, where uh, you often have rather complicated uh, technological uh, mixtures of goods and services, where uh, access and interoperability become very hot issues, uh, to what extent is a remedy uh, on that sort of issue, behavioral or structural? And does it really matter? Should there be uh, a strict view that uh, behavioral remedies are uh, less acceptable because more difficult to enforce, which is what a lot of people uh, have tended to say. So I think some of the differences emerging between authorities, which I hope are the subject of discussion between them and ultimately some degree of cooperation, are about how to solve a problem once you've identified it. Uh, If it can be solved, if it can't be solved, of course, uh, uh, prohibition is called for. Uh, But where where, uh, authorities are grappling with ways of solving competition problems once identified,
0: uh, I think is a very big issue. Jonathan, I'll turn to your new life in a second, but you spend a lot of uh, time advising companies on how to uh, navigate uh, their, their way through Brussels. Um, what advice would you give companies contemplating a transformative deal uh, likely to attract commission attention, what's the best way to get that transaction through?
1: Well, obviously it's tried, but obviously uh, think through uh, all the consequences. Um, talk to Nick Levy and Jonathan Fall and people like them. Uh, uh, understand the politics, the policy, uh, the geopolitics of the moment can't be ignored and uh, it's uh, try to put yourself in the, uh, in the shoes of, of people on the other side and consider the questions they're going to ask you. All of that, which sounds uh, obvious and uh, uh, something that everybody should do, uh, they don't uh, most of the time. Uh, for reasons which I fully understand, they're worried about their investors and their shareholders and their uh, other stakeholders. And the further you are from a decision-making centre, I think of our great companies in in Silicon Valley. Washington's a long way away. Brussels is on another planet. Uh, Those uh, companies involved in deals which look terribly sensible to them from a, a corporate point of view are often surprised, and frankly shouldn't be, uh, by the reaction of of antitrust regulators, because they don't think about those issues from the very beginning, uh, when it might still not be too late to structure the deal in a a different way, which will make
0: its passage uh, that much easier. So back to DG Comp, if I may, Jonathan, you're known in our world as the best Director General of DG Comp that we never had. Do you have any regrets about not having had that job? And if the opportunity had arisen at the right time, what would you have liked to do as Director General? Uh, do I have regrets now? No, none at all. Did I have
1: regrets at the time? Yes, I must have done. Uh, by the way, there are many other more deserving candidates for the best Director General of competition that we never had. Um, I, Uh, obviously, did have ambitions in that direction. Uh, It didn't work out uh, for all sorts of perfectly good reasons. And looking back, I'm very glad it didn't. Uh, I went on to do a whole range of very different things, which I enjoyed very much. I learned all sorts of new problems and solutions. Uh, I was involved in... uh, Uh, security affairs uh, after 9-11, the financial crisis, and uh, I had a much perhaps more rounded career than I would have done if I stayed in competition forever. Uh, I'm not criticizing those who who do stay in a particular field forever, uh, but I'm glad I didn't, looking back. What would I have done differently? Oh, that's very hard. Uh, uh, each director general faces uh, a different set of challenges, a different boss, uh, a different structure beneath him or her, and uh, I would have managed the DG to the best of my ability. I had no great burning ambition uh, to uh, rewrite this regulation or that regulation, Uh, the basic... uh, uh, foundations, the merger regulation, regulation number one of 2003 were in place. I always had a soft spot uh, for state aid, having been deputy director general in charge of that. And that has now become a much more uh, codified uh, mainstream uh, set of rules and policies, which I hope I would have done too. Uh, so, uh, no, there are no regrets about things that I might have done differently. And
0: no regrets at all that the opportunity wasn't there. Jonathan, many thought when you left the commission, you might join a law firm, (laughs) Um, but you didn't. You joined the Brunswick Group, you went into public affairs. Uh, A couple of questions, uh, how are you enjoying your new career? And as a believer in the, the independence of the institutions, What's your view of the role of public affairs in what is fundamentally a legal process?
1: I'm enjoying it very much. Um, Brunswick is, there are others too, no doubt, but a a fine collection of good professionals uh, all over the world. And I think we do our very best to serve our clients in helping them understand uh, the world outside and helping them get... Uh, what they want when they've really thought about what they want very carefully uh, to get it through and get it done. It is a legal process. The procedural, I mean, yeah, sorry, I was about to say the legal process is a legal process. Obviously it is, and we can correct that bit if you like. But there is more than the legal process. There is more than the, uh, the formal uh, procedure. Uh, there is a policy debate Uh, There are ways of explaining to uh, authorities and to stakeholders why you're doing what you're doing and why you want to do it that way, what you think the consequences will be. And we try to help companies sort that out. We work alongside uh, law firms uh, most of the time. Uh, Each respecting uh, the barriers. You guys have privilege, we don't, for example. You have insurance, and we don't. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think it's the right combination. I think uh, obviously a company has to understand uh, the legal rules applied to it and uh, what that means for the various choices it makes. And our job is to help them plan a strategy which includes sometimes, but not always, a public communication strategy. What do you tell newspapers? Newspapers, uh, particularly now, I was about to say, have to appear every day. They have to update their sites every minute. Uh, And uh, they are avid for news. Uh, Do you give it to them? How do you give it to them? Sometimes the best thing to advise is keep quiet. Uh, You have nothing to gain from having this debate in public uh you have to respect the uh uh, the role of the media and answer questions but you can answer them in a relatively unforthcoming way when it suits um so we do all of that we do not lobby uh i do not go banging on the doors of my former colleagues they would be embarrassed and so would i uh i don't harass them on the telephone i don't bombard them with emails i don't seek favors uh, i wouldn't expect to be given any that's certainly not what anybody should be asking me to do because i won't uh but what i can do is explain to a ceo in uh, uh australia or uh, san diego or uh, uh somewhere else uh this strange thing called the european union how it works why it does what it does uh how to understand its Uh, often rather odd uh, international English expressions, Uh, what the UK means in all of that these days, Uh, all of those things, and again, we're at a fairly early stage in this new post-Brexit environment to come back to the UK, all of that looks pretty weird uh, and is hard to understand from from the vantage point of very busy... Uh, uh company executives.
0: So we help them understand it. So just like this uh podcast, providing inside clarity, wisdom, and light in a complex and noisy world. That is a very noble ambition. We share. <laughs> Jonathan, we come to the quick fire questions towards the end of the podcast. Um, what advice would you give a young lawyer beginning a career in competition law?
1: Don't neglect economics. Uh, It's not enough to know the rules. Obviously, all the nuts and bolts have to be in place. Understand the way the institutions, the courts operate. Know the case law. Um, Learn to apply principles to facts. Uh, This is economic law, so understand the economics. Uh, Know how markets operate, why people do the things they do. Uh, In today's world... Uh, Try to understand the digital economy, how it works, uh, where it is likely to go in the next probably only few years. Beyond that, I'm not sure anybody knows. So do all of that. Um, Learn to write properly. Uh, It's very important. uh, And I suppose speak clearly. Uh, But uh, uh, express yourself clearly, concisely, Uh, in a way which, uh, again, the busy executive, your client, uh, uh, will understand. Um, What else? Um, It's fun. Enjoy it. Uh, Learn learn by doing, learn by watching your uh, peers. Uh, You'll soon work out who's good at it and who's less good at it and watch what the good people do. Uh, Better than any training course uh, you can go on, in my experience. For Europeans, I would say, uh, know your national law uh, as well as EU law, because you're bound to be asked from time to time uh, about the interaction between what happens in your own country and the EU. To British lawyers, I would say, but I'm afraid uh, uh, this is very much against the tide, don't forget about the EU. It is still useful and important. The source for lots of concepts which now bubble around uh, British law uh, and people have forgotten where they came from. Uh, perhaps it doesn't really matter so much, but it's useful to know and to watch the perhaps parallel developments they take in the future. Um, well, that's enough to be going on with, I think. But it's, uh, it's a busy agenda, and, and, and you'll have a lot of fun along the way.
0: Thanks, Jonathan. Second quickfire question. If you could change one thing about EU antitrust enforcement, what would it be? Nothing, nothing very radical. I think that
1: relationships between uh, London and Brussels, a preoccupation of mine for obvious reasons, uh, need to be improved overall, of course. And in the competition sphere, uh, I hope that the CMA and the European Commission uh, see each other as partners uh, rather than rivals. Uh, so I would certainly want to uh, add uh, whatever weight I could to to, to that endeavour. Um, no, there's no there's no case I think should be overturned
0: or any principle that should be should be abandoned. And the penultimate question, Jonathan: What's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? In my professional life, you don't want to hear about children and grandchildren, all that, I suppose.
1: Um, uh, that's in the achievement category. <laughs> um, listen, I uh, I went to Brussels uh, in my early twenties for a year or two, uh, and and stayed and had a wonderful career uh uh is it a matter of pride well i achieve certain things uh that i suppose i'm proud of uh, what i can say is i enjoyed it people often ask me don't you think that it was all a waste of time since it ended in brexit i never thought that i don't think that for a minute i think european integration is a very worthy development in european history uh and uh, my country our country is going to have to find a new relationship with it it's pity, uh, but I hope it continues to to succeed. Um, My greatest regret, I don't have uh, the sounds, I'm going to break into Edith Piaf in a minute, I I don't have great regrets. Uh, I obviously, there are various uh, bits of uh, uh, EU life that I don't know much about because I didn't do it. I never served overseas. Uh, I, I was never particularly involved in trade policy. Um, it might have been fun to serve in an EU delegation uh, abroad at some stage. I had a very domestic, uh, inward-looking career. But, hey, uh, uh, most people would, uh, uh, would give an arm and a leg to have done what I did. So I'm, uh, uh, I, I'm not regretful.
0: I don't look back. I agree with all of that. And finally, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known?
1: Yes, it's, it's professional and personal. Uh, my father, uh, who was a refugee from uh, Poland, uh, who uh, lived his adult life uh, in, uh, in England, uh, was very proud of what I did in Brussels, but frankly never quite understood what I was up to. And perhaps that was my fault, a perfectly intelligent man, in not explaining it uh, uh, well enough. He didn't live to see me at the very peak of my career, let alone uh, at Buckingham Palace being knighted. My mother did. I'm still alive, by the way. Uh, so it's a pity my father didn't see, uh, didn't see all of that, or the latter stages of it. But what he did understand, and why it's so important to me, is that uh, uh, cooperation between the nations of Europe, which have done such great harm uh, to themselves and, and to others, in recent history uh is a uh, remarkable still fragile uh development which uh, we and i include the british in that uh should all continue to support by whatever means possible
0: thank you jonathan it's been a privilege to know you all these years and a pleasure to spend this afternoon with you recording this podcast I'm Nick Levy. I've been your host today and look forward to welcoming you to the next edition of Clearly Got The Antitrust Review.